And you may ask yourself, do you add text into your video? And you may find yourself in the middle of a mandatory click-through e-learning. And you might say, this is not my training. C-Lab, the customer education laboratory where we explore how to build customer education programs, experiment with new approaches, and exterminate the myths and bad advice that stops growth dead in its tracks. I am Dave Darrington. And I am Adam Friday Avramescu. Friday Avramescu. All right. Yeah. I've decided my middle name is going to be whatever day of the week we're recording this. <laughs> Well, happy Friday, everybody. And what, what is the day of this week? We always have to do a day of. Yeah, well, uh, on this happy Friday, it is National Apple Dumpling Day. Ooh, What's apple an apple dumpling, Dave? I've got to look. It's a tasty dish. There's a movie made about the apple dumpling gang. Let's look it up on, uh, on Google. I've had them. They're great. Ooh, let's see. What are apple dumplings made of? Well, apples. And dumplings. Know. Apples wrapped in a buttery homemade dough, baked in a cinnamon brown sugar syrup. Okay, you had me in butter. Okay, those those listening in the Midwest will be ridiculing us right now for not knowing what this is. <laughs> and I used to live in the Midwest. It's fine. Well, you're okay. the one that called that out. That's a Midwest thing. It, it seems to be. I don't know. Maybe it's not. I've Who had knows? Them before. They're good, but... Hey, what are we talking about today? We're, we're, we've got some new topics. It's our uh, third and rapid fire sequence episode, and uh, I'm interested to get back into the groove. Yeah, me, me too. I could talk about apple dumplings all day, but I'd rather talk about audio and video. Woohoo! Okay, one of one of your favorite video. topics too, right? It is. This is really one of my favorite topics. I think Adam, probably one of the questions you and I both get pretty often is, all right, well, I'm ready to do this customer education thing. How do I go to the next step and actually record? And, you know, my my little intro to this is that when I started doing this, I had a lot of preconceived notions that really hung me up uh, about, well, what should I buy? How should I use it? How do I record? This whole part of it is really important. And if you make a little bit of an investment from the get-go, I think you have much better video and much better quality and all of your content's going to be better. What, what do you think, just as we enter into this sub subject? Yeah, I mean, I agree with you in general. You definitely don't want to be in a position where your job is recording video, recording audio, and uh, you're just using your your laptop's native, uh, you know, built-in mic. That's not really right. going to give you a great experience. Although I would also argue at the same time, you don't necessarily need the most top of the line uh, equipment that you can afford if you're just making simple little screencast videos. So, you know, I think we could probably talk a little bit about some different tools of the trade, but I just know this is a very, very common question that we hear from folks. Super common. All right, let, let's bang into it. If you don't mind, Adam, I'd like to take the lead on, on this first topic and start talking about the tools that I've used. Yeah, you definitely have a more sophisticated setup than I do. So I'd love to hear how you approach this. Cool. Well, I'm, I'm a bit of a, of a geek. I've geeked out on all the technology. I, I love hardware and software. We'll talk about software today, too. But let's talk about the hardware. Um, so first off, I'm, I'm going to say again, if anybody's at, at, like questioning out this, like, should I go cheap? Should I just get the basics? 
I really think from the get-go, if you purchase good quality, now I'm not saying the best, I'm not saying the most expensive, I'm saying good quality equipment and get what you can afford, don't cheap out, you'll you'll end up having a pretty good experience. So for example, if you say why, okay, why Dave should I go out and, it, and you can't see this, but I'll lift up my microphone. This is a, a really nice Rode Procaster microphone. It's not cheap, right? Um, I run in the, By the way, we're, we're recording video of this too. So if you go on our YouTube channel, video. you should be able to see anything that Dave is holding up. Exactly. So this Rode microphone is, is great. It, it, it was a little expensive. I had to buy some things run it, which I'm going to talk about. But the quality, the, the sound that comes out of it is exceptional. And good quality audio, one of the things that I learned very early on is, hey, first recording I ever made was on my, I was a MacBook Air right? Using the microphone and the, the video that was built in, it was God awful. There were pops, there were hisses, there was, you'd, I'd move and I'd make all these sounds on the computer. I, you'd hear coins jingling. You're like, oh, it was terrible because the mic that's built into your computer or just generic equipment is not often very good. It's good enough. Well, so, and not only that, but if you think about the way microphones work, and, and Dave, yeah. here, I'm going to rely on you. You're, you're a bit more of a, an audio technician than I am, even though we both Only record in various formats. <laughs> there's, there's some nuances to the directionality of a mic, right? There, there are right. some mics that are basically optimized to pick up everything around them, no matter where you are in the room. And there are other ones that are highly directional, like cardioid mics, where uh -huh. they're going to give you much more focused uh, control over your audio, but you have to be in the right place. And if you're just talking about your laptop mic, for instance, it is not going to pick up uh, or it, it's not going to operate like a directional mic where it's going to give no. you great quality in one direction. It's just it's designed to pick up everything in the room. Yeah. In kind of right. a mediocre way. Right. Yeah. I think the first microphone that I ended up buying and thinking, oh, this will be great was a blue. Uh, what is it? A blue um, I can't remember the name of it. It's like this little ball. Like a snowball? The snowball. snowball. Yeah. yeah, it was just a snowball, and I got rid of it since. And it was fun. It looked cool. It looked. It, you read the box, and you get really excited about it. It shows you all these diagrams. But in reality, I went into a room, into a room that I thought was quiet, even with padding. It picked up everything. Somebody dropped a pen upstairs. Uh, somebody walked by. I heard a conversation from a support person, and somebody yelled, and a dog came through because we have dog-friendly offices back in the day, and it was it was awful, but it was because, and, and one of the people that I'll give some attribution to is Volkashard, um, who said he, he maintained a little list of some really basic, really simple equipment that saved my life, saved my bacon. And, and I think I spent 40 bucks and I got a really good quality. So yeah, what, he has that article. It's called like, uh, what it's like your customer education, audio recording mm -hmm. setup for less than $50 or something like that. Right. Yeah. And um, I mean, he's gone further since there's an episode of uh, the Connecting the Dots podcast, episode number 22 with Alex Matheson, uh, where where he and Mel were interviewing Alex and showing the studio that he's built. Now, if you want to go to the extreme, the Code 42's edu education studio is just absolutely amazing, but we don't have to go there. So I'm going to go talking. Let's, let's talk about some of the equipment that I have used and Adam, you've used. Um, and, and why, why we buy these things and what, what's the value of them. So I'm going to start first. And if you're following along on camera, I actually have some props today. I love this kind of show and tell. You're a regular carrot with, top. <laughs> yeah, not I'm dye my hair. It'd be fun. 
Um, first thing is the Focusrite Scarlet. Um, mine's a little bit dusty. It's been, I've got two of them. I've got a, a larger unit that I have at my desktop that you cannot see, but this is the Focusrite 2i, I think. This is an older unit. You can find these online for, gosh, as low as 50 bucks on like eBay. But what this is, is it's an audio amplifier. And it's weird because when you look at it, you don't have USB here. These are weird connections. And what these weird connections are is XLR. So you hear about XLR, there's special cables for them, really big and meaty. They're very stable. If you try to pull them, they don't fall around. These are built for musicians and, and people doing professional audio work. Now you might say, well, Dave, what is, why do I need all this equipment? The cool thing about this, and I like to start with the audio amplifier first, because like think of the name, amplifier. What or an audio interface, it, it does have amplification and it does allow you to do some precise control. But if you're in an environment where you have more than one microphone, um, maybe you have maybe Adam, you and I have done this before. We're in an office and we did a podcast together, and you're on one side of the table and I was on one side. We captured it all on the same device. Mm -hmm. So this is really good for that. Plus, what's more is that this this opens up a world of different kinds of microphones. Adam, you're going to talk about the microphones that you use for USB, which are really amazing too. And there's no reason why you have to buy something like this. But I feel like this, if you have a studio, like if you have a place in your office where you can go and set up a nice environment or your team members have, they're going to work, like you have somebody that does a lot of the recordings, get them one of these, get the XLR, et cetera. So this helps first. And let me tell you about the, the, the pieces around that. So again, I was talking about the microphone. I've upgraded. I started off with, I don't know if I have it here. Yes, I do. Um, I started off with some very, ooh, sorry. Um, a little bit more animated for this one. This we've, is what we've got, Bill we've got props and sound effects. We got props and sound effects. Um, this is, let's see what the brand is Behringer, B E H R I N G E R. This is a very cheap purchase. This actually has three microphones in it. And they're you know simple directional mics um, or dynamic mics. They have very basic features, not a whole lot. So I basically would put this on the mic stand and be great. The audio actually these is pretty darn good. It I think this was thirty five bucks for three mics. So all in, you're not out a whole lot. It proves to me that you don't have to go out and buy the most expensive. The other hand, if you price out the Rode Procaster, they have two different versions. They have a Podcaster, which is USB, Procaster, which is XLR. It's a little bit more, but generally, I mean, these are running in the two hundred dollar price range or up. And then you so, have Dave, what's what, what's the what's the advantage, say, of ultimately using that XLR with a preamp setup versus USB? I think the advantage that I've seen is that there's a, a, a broad range of microphones that are much higher quality, right? These are what the pros use, mm -hmm. and because of that too, there's a lot of aftermarket stuff that you could buy off eBay, and you could you could go out and pick up some of this equipment used for a lot less, but the sound quality is typically better and you have more control over it. So for example, I could even go to the extent of getting, uh, I can't remember the name of the, the manufacturer, but they have these boards where you could even add in sound effects and transitions. You can hook in a cell phone and people can dial in. It, it really expands the latitude of what you're able to do. Um, yeah. And, and if you're, if you're recording, for instance, uh, like actual music, like you're in a band, you're not, you're not going to be using a USB. Exactly microphone typically you are you're going to have a preamp you're going to have exactly. actual mics that, that use xlr connections you're plugging in so there's a couple of things that were very nuanced but actually add to the dynamic fidelity like the depth 
of the sound. And I remember somebody commented one day, they listened to this podcast and they go, yeah, your, your audio is like butter. It sounds really good. And it was because with an XLR type setup with a couple of ports, I could sometimes actually set up another microphone in the back of the room, maybe near a noise, like in where we're at right now. And you may not be able to hear it. There's a heater and that's running. So if you do something like having, you basically have one mic sitting there to, to pick up ambient noise, you can cancel out a lot of that noise. Uh, similarly, there are things like this. I have what's called a mic booster. And one of the things that I find sometimes is gain is a problem and you might, you might not get really good gain off a mic with XLR. You can buy things like these that you can hook on in line and have them do other kinds of effects. Like this boosts this is a preamp and it really boosts the signal. So it's super cool. Um, other things we start getting into this, even with regular USB mics, you could have pop filters, which help this kind of sound when you get breathy. Sometimes you might, um, mm-hmm. or when we like and, to beatbox on the podcast. Right. Yep. Um, and then there's fun stuff like, you know, there's an arm here. And if you buy some of the more resilient arms, like you can go out and buy a microphone arm that's pretty cheap. But I found if I put my road in there, it falls down. Um, some of these better arms have a lot more control and you can really get the, the audio up to your mouth and you can move it around. It makes it just makes for a much more seamless and fun experience. So um, so that's my pitch on on audio. I am an XLR person, but I have used USB 2 and I find going on the road, it's really cool to have like all the USB kit because then you don't have all these wires snaking all over. What do you think? What are your thoughts about um, audio? What, what would you expand upon that with? Yeah, I mean, like like I mentioned, I am a USB person for the most part. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's that's also because I don't do as much audio recording as you do. Uh, and I don't geek out, out, geek out on it as much. So, you know, in my day-to-day, I'm not necessarily recording the type of audio that's going to go into an e-learning right. video and needs to be super, super high quality. So certainly I, I could and I might at some point get a setup that's similar to yours. But I think... Using something like this, I've got I've got the blue Yeti, not the snowball, but the Yeti. I'm trying to keep and my that's mouth a good one. That's the a same really good mic. distance. Yeah, it's a good it's a good mic. And actually, here I'll I'll show for the video. Uh, if you see, it has different settings on the back. So yeah. it is it's on a cardioid setting right now, which means that it is going to be directional. Um, and but I could change that to make it more of an area mic as well. So I might here I might just like play with the settings for a moment. You can see now that I kind of changed it to. Uh, an area, an area mic setting. I don't know if this sounds any different. It does. To you, Dave, it does. It okay, does a little bit. And I, but I could, I could kind of go over here, and you might hear me a little bit better than if I change it back to the cardioid setting. And now I'm over here. You're probably not going to hear me quite as yep, well. Yeah, that's a big difference, right? Yeah. So you can, you can actually hear the difference in action. And now I don't think, again, for what I do. I need to get quite as sophisticated as what what you do, but I appreciate that you started. You know, we were, we we could have started anywhere, but you started with audio quality, and yeah. I think that's super important because to me, it's not necessarily about buying the most top of the line uh, materials that you can afford. To me, it's about making sure that whatever you're doing at a baseline is not going to be distracting, that's because right. they've done research on this. Ultimately, you can get away with lower fidelity video. You can get away with you can get away with a lot, quite frankly. But the thing that's going to distract people more than anything is poor audio quality, and it becomes Great. a huge impediment, a huge distraction. So if you're getting a bunch of stray background noise, 
uh, or you're using your laptop mic or another cheap mic, or maybe you're using one like a headset mic where it's like brushing against you and, and there's just terrible <laughs> audio and yeah, you're not doing any editing and people can hear you eating and all that kind of stuff. That That's what's going to take people uh, out of the moment pretty quickly. So for me, uh, Blue Yeti with a with a pop filter and it it generally does the trick, although probably not. It's not going to be as buttery as your setup. Yeah, and it doesn't need to be. I mean, I, I went over the top, but I did that for other things as well because I like having a physical studio, and I don't like, for example, I'm going to show you this. I, I have a just a series uh, a basic Tascam studio headset. Right, it's actually a good headset. It usually comes free with certain kits that you buy. Um, and these are really nice uh, when you're doing audio because one of the things you actually want to do is you're not worried just about recording audio. You're also editing and thinking about what what it's what you sound like and, and you're trying to optimize for as little fiddling around with your audio room and your setup as possible. So you can sit down and record. Mm-hmm. That's my goal yeah. is that I invested because I want to sit down and record. And you know, it's it's feature free. The other thing I have is I also purchased some studio reference speakers. And, and a lot of times I go, okay, I'm just going to get a headset. Cool. Got my headset. But reference speakers are kind of cool as well because for a couple 300 bucks, if you're in an office or you're in a studio and you have a studio, they allow you to get a good true sound of what you actually will sound like on the other end. It's, it's not, it's more flat. It's not like these aren't designed for listening to music, although I do, and you can get good, good reference out of them. Um, the other thing I did want to mention is, okay, we're listening and we're editing where if you have the opportunity, you should definitely get, you talked about a baffle, right? But you may want to, if, if you can soundproof or do anything like that, even, oh gosh, if you have to, you know, the, the good old trick to recording is you go in a closet with clothes in mm-hmm. it. And, and, and you, you put a, you put a around. blanket over yourself and over the mic. Yep. Yeah, but. Or what is Adam, it? Someone, who was it? Jesse? Jesse from Box or Maria from Box. I don't remember which uh-huh. which one of them posted on LinkedIn about their their very basic setup where they basically just put everything in a box and pad the they, they have like a cardboard box and they put some audio dampers on it and they put the mic inside it and that's that's their setup. That's their setup, yeah. I love it. I don't remember which oh. one of them posted that anymore, but there <laughs> there are very simple ways to achieve this the same effect. There are, and there there are a bunch of them, but you know, it depends on what your budget is. It depends on how big a team you've got. It depends on what your preferences are. That's This is what I like to use because it allows me to sit down and be pretty fluid about making stuff. In the office, we'd actually built a studio. But it, but I would aspire to have something like, you know, Alex has at, at Code 42, which is just absolutely amazing. Yeah, or, you know, I saw the other day on, I think, LinkedIn, the Miro yeah, team, Mel Milloway and awesome. uh, the Miro team, yeah, doing their studio recordings and they've got a great setup both for audio and and video especially so maybe maybe Dave this would be a good time to talk a little bit about the actual video and backgrounds and yeah what do, what do we do from that that point of view all right so, well this is where I'll get out a little bit more because I think it's not just enough to th- to have a good audio setup as much as possible because we're in this post covid you know virtual world I want to see you. I want to talk to you. I want to have the best fidelity that I can possibly have. And I want you to be able to see me depending on what kind of training modality that we're having. Are we doing a, a class, a training ILT VILT? Are we recording an on-demand module? I'm, I'm, most of the time I'm leaning that way, but these things are 
similar in both directions. So let's talk about lighting. Uh, actually, no, let's not talk about lighting. Lighting is actually pretty nuanced and it's really important. Um, we'll talk about a couple other things. So video, how about that? That's easy. Let's start video, there. Video, I just have a basic Logitech camera. It's one of the HD cameras. It sits atop my monitor. I actually have, and, and I'll bring one of these in, into focus here. This is a mic stand I have. I call my desk the octopus because I have all these little cables around. But what I like to have is just one of these. This is an Amcrest, really cheap, about 50 bucks. It has a flip cover to it. That's great because sometimes you might record and not know it. You don't want to do that. Um, but a camera like that is fine. It's a little bit over, above up from your Mac or your PC camera. And mm -hmm. the Logitech has just a, it actually has a speaker in it. You wouldn't want to, or a microphone. You wouldn't probably want to use that. But the video is good enough. So if you're going for a generic picture, me on the screen while I'm doing stuff, this is more than adequate. Yeah, but if you uh, really want to go to the next level, then you're probably using a DSLR. Yeah, um, I don't know about you, but I love the. I have a Canon EOS, and I love the fact that they have released software for that. So now you could actually use that same kind of mount, put your DSLR camera on there, and oh my goodness, the quality and fidelity that comes out of that is is amazing. It's a lot, and it's it's fun too. Yeah, and like and and what we mean by that, we're literally when you when you picture one of those Canon cameras, if you don't know what a DSLR is. Those yeah. big Canon cameras, they've got the digital display in the back. They've got the, the the lens that you can switch out and interchange. That's what we're talking about. I used to have one as well, but I don't I don't have one anymore. Yeah, I actually have a prop right here, and I played with it for – I played around with this for a couple of months. So, yeah, again, standard cam, Canon camera, but when, we talk, when we're talking hardware, one of the things now that you also want to buy is these small interfaces. It's an AC adapter. So you can put the adapter into your camera. That way you're going to burn the battery out otherwise. But now mm -hmm. you can use your DSLR. And I've also seen just recently that there are, the companies are now starting to produce. I think Indiegogo had one of these campaigns up. DSLR shotgun type cameras. They're really small. and But they are full DSLR quality and they look more like a webcam. So that's yeah. pretty exceptional too. That That's really cool. And and so, you know, you can, you can go all the way up the line and you can have a professional studio setup. And especially for those of you who work with your marketing teams, you might have an actual video producer, videographer, uh, someone like that on your team that actually has the whole setup and can either, you can either use it or they can share what they, what they do with you. But yeah. you know, the other thing that you can do, and I don't know that people always think to do this is go, go look at articles on uh, recommendations for yeah. YouTubers, right? Because if you're a YouTuber, yeah. Yeah, if you're seriously. a YouTube influencer, if you're a Twitch streamer, uh, you're probably going to want that sort of setup anyway. And there are many articles and uh, docs out there geared towards how do I get my pro YouTuber set up? That's going to have all the same equipment that you might want to use to do customer education as well, right? If you're yeah, not going to have actually, like a full studio. you want Yeah, if you want to have a full studio, it's, it's totally worth it. This stuff isn't inexpensive. This isn't expensive anymore. It's realistic. And like in, if I, I, maybe I'll take a picture of my desktop when I published the article that goes along with the podcast, because I want you to see like how cool it could be. I sit down and I've got all the things, but for me, because I have all this stuff now actually helps me in my day job because people are like, Hey, I can, wow, I can see you really well. And like, you don't see this over here. I didn't talk about like, I have a green screen that I don't have it up, but I invested in my background. So I don't need it. Green screen up allows you to do all kinds of things. You know, you can put your branding in, you could show yourself in a 
a pop-up screen with all the background. So it's just your head like the Twitch streamers do. I think that's really oh, cool. Oh, yeah. It's less distracting if you use a green screen and you trim out your background like we do in Zoom calls, but then you put you as a talking head over the video work that you have and sometimes maybe move it around. Um, the other thing that you really need to, to do, and I'd, I'd actually call out, give props to the TechSmith folks on this. There's some really great videos that they've done on lighting and how important lighting is. Oh my gosh, there's so many YouTube videos on this as well. I have yeah. just in, uh, is that is that in TechSmith Academy, Dave? Uh, I saw I saw a YouTube video on it, but I'm pretty sure it's it's most likely in the Academy as well. Okay. Um, for lighting, so if we're going to talk about lighting. I know I'm kind of like shotgunning all this stuff together. Lighting can be done very simply with a ring light. Um, you know, I have I have one here that you, well, I'll just move my camera around. So I have a basic ring light set up over here, and that's you know, got a control to it. You could automate, you can get the fancy ones that are Wi-Fi enabled, but you can change the colors. And I like kind of a reddish or a pinkish hue that makes me look like I'm not washed out. I've got a geek tan going on, but this does a lot to bring light to my face. And if you see some of the, the other technologies you get, you can get a couple on both sides and you can really, it, it really makes you look less washed out. You look more animated. And if you're doing ILTs and VILTs, Oh my God, invest in a good light source because then people can see you so much better. Um, and similarly, sometimes what I'll do is I'll have other lighting effects in the back of the room. Uh, like you see, I have LEDs here, but that's just for fun. But I might have my green screen up and I might just have a couple of lights coming up at the angle if I really care. That's not something that we really aspire to in customer education. But if you want to get fancy, maybe you're doing some work for marketing and partnering with them and you want to like, okay, here's an example where, where it will matter. When I've done work for marketing to support events where we're doing like a video that's got an educational event, that's when I pull out all the stops and I make my best stuff. So Yeah. And, and I think, you know, you, you can actually approach this from a, a content perspective too. When you think about the quality of your audio, the quality of your video, this is all going to come down to what types of materials you're putting together. If you are that's relying true. on a lot of talking head videos, you're going to have an expert standing in front of the the camera, the green screen, like sort of like we saw in the Miro video sitting at a desk, uh, where you're going to have the person's face on the screen. That's the sole focus. That's the center of attention. Well, yeah, you are going to want your video quality there to be professional quality. Uh, Wistia is another really good example of a company who who does these really well. And in fact, yeah. sometimes they use very creative shot setups. It's not just a talking head. They've got people kind of walking around, to, walking towards the camera. If that's if that's your main focus and, and often for videos that are a little bit more conceptual in nature or where you might not be spending as much time taking, say, screenshots of software, well, that might be a great approach. And in fact... Uh, if you're doing video bumpers that are a little bit more generic, where you might be talking about the concepts, and then you're going to go uh, switch to either slides or uh, screenshots or something like that, that could be a really good way to approach. But in general, you probably want to use it for content that's a little bit more evergreen mm-hmm. uh, and where you're not going to just have to continually reshoot it over and over and over because it does take time to get that's that right. right. And especially right. if you're working with someone who isn't as comfortable in front of the camera you're going to need multiple takes to, to get it right and make sure that they get their lines and uh, they're you know reading their cue cards, that they're looking at the camera and they're, they're so not uh, having outtake after outtake, right? People get nervous. So I, I do think there's, there's something here to be said of it's not just an arbitrary decision how 
high end or low end you go, a lot of this will be informed by ultimately what type of content you're really trying to produce and what's the outcome that you're trying to generate by producing that content. Because honestly, and like we can get into software in a moment, if you're just doing really disposable support videos, for instance, you probably don't need anything we just talked about except like a decent quality camera and some software to do a little bit of, uh, or sorry, a decent quality microphone and some software to do a little bit of uh, editing on that and yeah. a little bit of video capture, right? That's probably all you need. Yeah, and I think I think you're right. Don't get overwhelmed by all of the things we're saying. This is something you want to put back and, and play back later when you go, okay, now I'm ready to upgrade that mic. Oh, now I'm ready to get a little bit better video. Now I want to do something else. The point is, as, as you're getting it, uh, customer education is so so weird because we touch a lot of different things and we, we're asked to do many different things. So I think it's really important to talk, have this conversation, Adam, where you say, well, what can you do? What's your budget? It's all dependent on what you're producing. Yeah. So we, we talked a little bit about software. Do you want to talk a little bit about that, Dave? Go into a little bit more depth on what software we, we use and what we see yeah. people using? Yeah, let's do. And, and um, do you want to lead off on this one? I've got definitely strong opinions, but here's where we're both kind of like a little bit more parody. Yeah, yeah. In general, I, so I am not a super advanced video editor. I've, I've taught myself some basic editing software, but certainly would not consider myself uh, a <laughs> huge, a huge expert on any of this by any means. Uh, one that uh, a couple that I've used in the past is uh, Camtasia and ScreenFlow, mm -hmm. and that would be more for you know some of those uh, tutorial videos where you might be showing some screenshots, uh, some screen capture, uh, a little bit of text on screen. I think both of those tools can can accomplish that pretty effectively. Uh -huh. what, what do you think, Dave? I love those tools. I, I've been a big Camtasia fan from the moment I discovered it uh, because I feel like it's it's got a price point that's it's within reach of anybody. I mean, even, uh, frankly, I think it was funny. I was I was talking with Wendy Hamilton one day in a podcast episode where we talked we we interviewed her on the that's show. That's the uh, CEO of TechSmith, correct? Uh huh. CEO of TechSmith and. She challenged me to say, well, you know, who do you think the biggest users of products like these are making videos? Turns out YouTubers, right? Um, if you look behind the scenes and some of the videos that people do, you can tell they're using a tool like Camtasia. It's easy to use. It's inexpensive. They do frequent updates. It's got a lot. It's, it's just easy yeah. to use. So a I really like good kind of entry product. point. Yeah. Yeah. Once, really once you're point. once you're past using like QuickTime or iMovie or something like that, that's really intended for very, very basic consumer use, then then you probably want something like Camtasia or maybe ScreenFlow. Right. Because in this case, you're you're really transitioning to, um, you know, a digital workspace. I, I'm, I'm blanking on the, the, the category that you have. Like uh, in, in audio, it's called like a digital, digital audio workstation. So you've got a this DAW. similar thing. A DAW. Yeah. Like um, Ableton is uh, actually Audacity could be could be categorized in a in a DAW, but it just doesn't have the same kind of features. Um, but anyway, yeah, Camtasia is really good. The other alternative that I've used in the past, and we really haven't gotten to, to um, all the different products, but I like to use uh, Adobe Captivate too. That's what I started on after I I I did um, the um, oh gosh um, the Apple stuff, the j just built in whatever I had. I use that first and then I go, I can't do this. Now I'm doing to Captivate. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and again, depends what you're doing, right? Because Captivate is going to give you more of that interactivity as well. It's going to feel a little bit more similar to 
Articulate uh, or uh, yeah. Lectora or, or, or one of those. But yeah, you could certainly use it for more of a Camtasia style use case as well. And then it depends. Oh, if you're not going to go full on and add a bunch of interactivity and you don't necessarily need to go down the rapid dev e-learning route and you really want to go the pure video route, well, then at some point you're probably using Adobe Premiere, maybe Adobe yeah. After Effects if you want to start adding a lot of motion graphics or things like that. Uh, or perhaps like Final Cut Pro, one of, one of those uh, more advanced pieces of software. But again, you probably don't need that for the majority of videos that you're creating if you really are doing more basic screenshots, screen capture, text on screen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want you want that stuff if you're if you're going to be doing more, uh, you know, what we might consider like pro level videos. Yeah, agreed with that. Yeah, there's a lot of tools. Like, if you want to get into more of, maybe, maybe we switch over to audio, and then maybe we can talk about some of the tools that are kind of like a hybrid between both. Like what we're using right now with ZenCaster. Yeah, yeah, we are using ZenCaster to record this, and if you're watching us on YouTube, you can see the video that ZenCaster is is taking. And if you're listening to us on the podcast, then you are either listening to what ZenCaster has recorded, or you might be listening to what we recorded into Audacity. Because we always keep local copies. We don't trust uh, just putting our recordings into the cloud. Mm-hmm. But either way, actually, this brings up an, an important point. I think if you're using any sort of cloud recording tool and you're doing something like a, a, you know, a, a, a Zoom meeting or something like that, don't rely on just the Zoom audio recording. And not necessarily yeah. Zoom, any, any conference software that you're using. Because you're going to get clipping. It's going to be low quality. Uh, if you're listening to a podcast ever and you hear all of those, you know, clip outs, you know that they recorded just off of the uh, the Zoom recording. That's why we always uh-huh. record locally when we can. We can't right. always, but but usually. Yeah, sometimes you have. Well, the, that's your backup, right? Sometimes you go, oh, the local recording failed or the Zoom recording failed. Something happens all the time, and you have those yeah. as backups. But that should be Plan that's A, a not Plan or that should be Plan B, not Plan A. <laughs> exactly. Um, but okay, so we're using we're using Zencaster. Love that. Um, for audio, we use Audacity regularly. It's open source, free, right? And it's pretty high quality. Um, TechSmith has mm-hmm. Audiate, which is pretty yep. cool. Um, Adobe has um, oh gosh, what's the? I, I don't use it as much, but um, it's the Adobe platform for oh, yeah. audio. What, what is Adobe Audition? Called? Audition. That's it. Yeah, um, which is really cool. Um, I mean, you really can't go wrong with a lot of these platforms. I just like, well, I started off on uh, Audacity because it was free and, you know, we were resource deprived. So we picked that up. Um, yeah. Any other things and if, you, if you're moving, you're moving into ones that are more, again, pro level, you're going to get more, more yeah. plugins, uh, more, more options for post-production and things like that. But if you're, again, if you're just doing basic audio, there's really no reason not to record into something like Audacity or Audio. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, go ahead. Yeah. What, what else? What else we got, Dave? Um, I didn't want to lose sight of some other little tools in there. For example, I use something called the Levelator. And this is like a nuance. I'll do Audacity or I'll do or we'll record here in Zencaster. But sometimes I find that the audio is, is still not quite right. And mm-hmm. that's when I go in and I use some tools in any of the audio engines that we have because you can use things to clean up noise. Uh, you can get pretty sophisticated in making the audio sound better if you've had, maybe maybe your your clipping was too hot, or maybe 
yeah, your audio wasn't high enough and you can boost it. Yeah. You could do all these different well, things. Well, in fact, I even do a little bit of uh, post-production and noise reduction sometimes on my on my tracks mm-hmm. in, in Audacity because they have a plugin yeah, you can do a lot. to do that. Yeah. Right there. I mean, you can clip on a segment of noise and clean out the noise filter. Uh, but like Levelator is a little product I found. Um, it's, I think it's for both PC and Mac, but what it does is it, if, okay, if you're, if I'm on a call with you, when we're, we're recording a podcast, or maybe I'm interviewing somebody and I'm building this into content, or maybe I have recorded something three times. Like I, I recorded a little bit and went, came back, I recorded again. And then you know what? The audio sounds different. Um, the levelator basically takes all of the audios and levels it out evenly, brings some up, brings some down, smooths it out. So you end up having a really nice product. And this is something that you could drop in and walk away and just drop, drop the audio track back in to whatever you're working on. So it's there's all this exciting stuff that you use to make really amazing quality content. That's great. Yeah. Um, we didn't also mention like before we, I think we're close to wrapping up on this, but there's another couple of tools. I mean, you you talked about animation tools. You talk about that, but I, I wanted to talk about OBS, Streamlabs, uh, as we start to get into the space where we're thinking more like Twitch streamers. Um, OBS is a platform for recording that actually blew my mind for not recording or streaming live. It has all kinds of technologies in it, and the recording quality level is out of sight. Um I don't know what they did, but the product is excellent. You can even use Streamlabs. So you can record all this stuff like a Twitch uh, person would record, but then you could do things like stream it to different sources or just take the video out and record it and edit it in something like uh, you know, a, a Adobe tools or what have you. So just wanted to mention that. There's a lot of stuff out there that you might not even think directly uh, related, which work really well for the work we do. Yeah, that. I mean, it's always great to be looking outside of our immediate world. It doesn't need to be purely learning related software, though. Certainly, again, there there are other ones that you can use to supplement. Uh, I see people use animation based tools like Powtoon and Beyond yeah. uh, or some of these more like out of the box video creation software like Animoto and even some of the more quick and dirty uh, screen recording software out there like Loom and Cloud App. And I think even mm-hmm. Snagit now has some very basic uh, captureability that's kind of short of what Camtasia does, but will certainly help in a pinch. So again, there are some great tools out there that help supplement what you might be doing just, just outside of that core audio and video. Right. And, and the bottom line too, is that a lot of this stuff really isn't very expensive at all. It's really not. No, a lot of it is very reasonably priced. priced. Yeah. Yeah. And there, and some of these are going more enterprise, you know, they have good subscription models. Um, we didn't mention there's other things we do, like I'll use Otter for transcription. You know, there's a lot of that kind of stuff because when you record mm-hmm. a video, you want to get the transcription off of that. And then we've used so a little bit of a uh, Descript, which uh-huh. lets you do transcription yeah. and editing on the fly against the, the transcript that you're doing. So there's kind of some, there's That's a really cool. interesting dynamic there. Yeah. Yeah. We use a lot of this stuff for C-Lab, but we've used a lot of stuff at work and it's just very fluid. So we're, we're happy to share. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we, unless you have other thoughts, uh, we can transition to our last topic for the episode. What do you think? I, I think uh, it's time to take a hard left turn because one question that we get asked, yeah, when it comes to doing this type of work is, okay, so you've got your, you've got your audio, you've got your video, maybe you've got it to the point where it's not going to cause distractions. It's, it's good enough quality, but then people start asking questions about, how do you balance engagement versus distraction? And, and the way that you often hear this phrased is, 
hey, um, should I or should I not have background music in my video? Do you include it because it gives the video more personality? Or do you avoid it because it's distracting? Or you might hear the same question about talking heads. Do you have your face in the video uh, superimposed over the uh, screenshots that you're showing? Uh, Do you have the narrator's face in there, sort of like you might during a VILT? Or do you just have the voiceover? Is it engaging Mm. or is it distracting? It's a good question. And yeah. off the top of my head, I don't know, but what what do you what do you think about it? what's the data showing us? Well, I guess first of all, I think the question is is a trap. I'm gonna apply the uh, Admiral It's bar. a trap. Yeah. <laughs> Principle to this away. one. Cause cause okay, because people ask what's more engaging, but engagement actually means a few different things. So when people say, oh, yeah, I want to add music because it's engaging or, oh, I want to add someone's face because it's engaging. Well, what does engaging really mean? Like engagement could mean people's enjoyment of the content and their willingness to keep engaging with it. But it also could mean the depth to which they are engaging with it and, and learning something. And often those two forms of engagement or those two definitions of engagement actually come at the complete expense of one another. So some of this comes down to what's the goal of the content? Yeah. Is this like uh, um, a sizzle reel? Is this a quick video intended to pique interest and spur further learning down the road? Or is the goal truly instructional? And that's going to frame a lot of the research that's been done on these topics. Yeah. You know, I, I wanted to inject here in like my thinking about this as you're talking about it. I think about our, our poor instructional designer or learning experience designer sitting there in front of a blank screen. They've started to do research they're figuring this out and um now it seems like they have a job adam of also considering the cognitive load on the learner like okay well i'm gonna i want to do this thing are you doing am i doing this thing just because i think it's cool or am i doing this thing Mm -hmm. this kind of applying this kind of effect because it actually help engage so that's right this has become a stealth Instructional Design 101 episode, like five minutes to the end. We've made a left <laughs> turn. Now we're talking instructional design. Now we're in my house, baby. Woo! All right. Okay. Yes, exactly. Now now that we both clipped out on our audio, we're going to have to use the little editor to <laughs> Legit. fix that. Well, we had to demonstrate what clipping looks like in this episode, right? That's that's true. Okay. You want to scream a little bit more? No. Okay. So I, I, I agree. I agree, Dave. I think one of the key skills that any instructional designer needs to have is being able to balance and manage cognitive load for the learner. Right. And, and so what we mean here is often we have so many bells and whistles added in our learning because we think it's cool. Uh, and if you kind of take this into a different format, uh, you might think, okay, in a PowerPoint, the version of this might be adding a bunch of clip art because you think it's going to make the learning more fun, but that's actually not, it's been shown not to be uh, effective. It's been shown to be distracting. And similarly, another example of this might be um, if you are, are using rapid dev e-learning and you're, you're throwing in a bunch of interactivities and you're like click to reveal, but it doesn't actually support the learning in any way. You're just using the features because they exist, not because they actually support the learning. So, the, the issue at hand here is that often we are throwing so much information at the learner that they're unlikely to retain it or put it into practice. And so when I talk about managing cognitive load, I mean, whatever information or concepts we are introducing to the learner, we really have to make sure that they're able to encode it uh, into their working memory and into their long-term memory so they actually retain it. So information here doesn't just mean content. We could be throwing a lot of other stuff at them. We could be right. throwing 
excessive animations, graphics, sound effects, uh, which are glitzy, but they often distract from the actual learning at hand. Yeah, it's true. The seductive details. I, I like how you put that, that, you know, we don't, yeah. don't want to overwhelm. Um, I, you know, it's, I, I think about this, Adam, and I'm, I'm reflecting on, you know, I, I've spent a lot of time kind of researching YouTube and Twitch and exploring that space into what works. Well, the thing about that, what people are, it's, it's hard to really explore the depths of what kind of learning is happening on those platforms. But what people are doing there, it's, it's really similar to SaaS. Actually, gaming, I think, is SaaS these days, video games. Um, and what learners are doing is seeking out these long-form videos where we'll watch, oh my gosh, like I've watched some of these epic builder things where people are spending 30 hours building a factory in a, in a video game and people will watch the whole thing. But the way that they engage with it is like on Twitch because now you have all this stuff going on. I could talk to, to you while you're doing stuff. It's kind of like training and you're engaging and there's flashing lights and things. And sometimes I'm just like, when somebody has, has, has totally oversaturated that screen with, okay, I made a donation and I did this thing and did this thing and this thing happened and something explodes and, and then yeah. you're watching now the I have, game. And I've then been gifted my subs and yeah. Oh uh, yeah. And, and it's kind of cool and exciting, but then I'm like, I don't, I don't know what I'm looking at here. And that's the problem with education is that if all those channels and feeds are coming at you, you've lost the learner. You've overwhelmed them. Yeah. And, and that's what, so th that idea of seductive details, that, that largely comes from the research of uh, Clark and Mayer. And if you read the uh, e-learning and the science of instruction book, they've got a lot of details around that where they're, they kind of talk about the research and the research into practice work that each of them has been doing. So we do this in learning all the time, right? We've got like mm -hmm. kind of interesting material or fun facts or nice to haves or multimedia that, that might be considered engaging, but it's actually irrelevant. And so what that actually does is it interferes with the learner's ability to process the essential information. Right. And so this could happen if you're providing uh, like voiceover and images that don't correspond to each other. So again, like putting clip art in there or something like that, or you're putting text on screen that's not also being narrated. Uh, there, there, there's some really good research that has been proven and is evidence-based around uh, dual encoding versus seductive details. So those are concepts that you can look up and learn a little bit more about what's been proven. Now, I think I think Clark and Mayer definitely read each of their books. They've got a lot of helpful research. And if you're working on e-learning or if you're working on video, uh, they're definitely uh, a couple names you should know and re uh, reach out. Uh, Mayer especially has done a lot of multimedia learning research. Um, so I would say the research, if you if you want to take the evidence-informed perspective, it supports the idea of hewing closely to text uh -huh. and images and making sure that those texts and images are tightly related to each other. Not a lot of distractions, okay. not a lot of random stuff on there. So so if I were to, to think about the way I'm building video, one of the things that comes up in our instructional design meetings is, hey, Jim, I'm making up names. Um, oh, I see what you're doing with this, but you know what? There's so many words on this slide and you're reading the words and they're showing up and I'm like, what, should I read the words or I should I listen to you? When yeah. maybe the technique is, well, you show fewer words. You sent you know, maybe a, a line and then another line shows up and another line shows up, but I'm elaborating. So the words that are coming out of my mouth are more, right? 
Yeah, or or ideally you have, you know, representative image that actually describes what the what the text is is showing. So maybe you're talking about a process that's happening on the screen and you're narrating it as it's happening and then then you're dual encoding at that point because you're watching it happen on the screen and at the same time the audio is telling you what is happening or maybe there's text on screen that's telling you what is happening. Uh, although I think there's also yeah. research that says don't don't put text on screen and have audio that reads the text because that that actually does the opposite of I could be misquoting I think that does the opposite of what dual encoding is supposed to do but yeah you're probably right but let's uh can I ask you a question then to go for yeah yeah let's one of the things I think we wanted to talk about was the talking heads right the band's great um <laughs> <laughs> once once in a lifetime when a once in a, I like that. You remember that? that and you may ask yourself, like, do you add text into your video? And you may find yourself in the middle of a mandatory click-through e-learning. And you might say, this is not my training. Oh, my gosh. That's ex- exceptional. Okay, Dave, um, you, you and I will do that. Uh, that that'll be our like end of the year holiday recording. We'll we'll do our parody version of yeah. That's it. What what can you learn from the talking heads? What does talking heads have to do with uh, customer education? Okay, yeah. back to what I was trying to ask you about. Okay, are they is a talking head really effective? Or because I see it all the time. Like here, I'll give you an example. One of the companies I stepped into, some of the content that I'd seen that a former team had made really took advantage of talking heads. And I'm going to tell you my first look at this was like, wow, that looks pretty cool. I like that. But then I watched it and then I listened to it and I go, well, I see what you're trying to do here. It was there, but the intervention, the learning intervention didn't have any calls to action. It was a talking head. It looked good. It looked like a marketing video. And in fact, mm-hmm. it was. I mean, it, it, it was supposed to be education, but it was really a marketing video. There was no call to action. There was no quiz. There was there was nothing I had to do. The video, I didn't even have to do anything. The video would complete and I get credit for it. So me as a learner, I'm like, well, I I didn't get anything out of that experience. Yeah. And that that's that? probably, well, yeah, there, there's something wrong from that instructionally for a variety of reasons, not just related to the the talking head, you're, you're not really, there's no application component no application. to that. But like, I, I think, I think the question people ask is they go, okay, well, like, you know, let's say I'm doing screenshots. Well, Hey, if I'm doing a, a series of screen recordings, do I put my face in the bottom right hand corner? Because that's going to be more engaging to the learner because people like seeing faces and people like the human element. Um, and, and they're saying that I think presuming maybe that there's some research done on this. And, and I think that I, I won't go into all the research that's been done on this. There, there has been a bit or maybe more than a bit, but I think the, the answer is the research is kind of contradictory and we don't really know yet. So <laughs> of course, so well, I mean, there are, there are a lot of instructional design concepts that are truly based in peer reviewed research. Uh, they've, they've replicated the studies uh, they replicated it reliably. It's valid. All of that good stuff. Uh, this stuff, not quite as much. So uh, in in that book that I was talking about earlier, the Clark and Mayer book, they cite some research that was pretty early, I think, early going, where uh, they were looking at the effectiveness of talking heads. Didn't really look like it was very effective. Uh, not necessarily a helpful addition, potentially a distraction if you right. had that on screen while you were trying to show something else. Because again, it's, it might be like a seductive detail. Uh, and even more recently, uh, Mayer, as well as some peers, 
did more research where they were experimenting with a different video scenarios where there was an instructor and a whiteboard and they were doing different permutations of does the instructor look at the camera? Does Mm. the instructor not look at the camera? Is the whiteboard uh, opaque? Is it transparent? So they were trying to get at these different combinations of how people were processing the information. So the the most effective combination, just to cut to the chase, was the one where uh, there was a traditional whiteboard. It wasn't a a see-through transparent whiteboard. Um, so the students were focusing more on the learning material than the instructor, I think is the key point to take out of that. Yeah. Uh, but also the scenario where the instructor would shift her gaze uh, so the students could respond to her cues. So again, a little bit of contradictory evidence here on whether having a face helps or not. But it, it seems like based on that research, at least where it might be helpful is when you want students to kind of pick up some of the nuances around what the instructor is saying or maybe when they're pausing or why they're pausing. Now, again, I don't know. Is that more applicable in a self-paced learning? Is that more applicable in a VILT? I just, I don't think there's enough research for us to really apply it more broadly. And I think the research is, is still early. And in fact, there's even another contradictory study out there that these Stanford researchers di- did in tandem with uh, Citrix, who we know as the creator of, uh, what is Citrix? WebEx? No. That's, Citrix is uh, GoToMeeting. Yeah, which is log me in now. Yeah, Cisco, Cisco is WebEx. Yeah. Yeah. So, right, they, they did some, some eye tracking research where they were looking at talking head videos and they found that the learners preferred videos with the talking heads and there wasn't necessarily a, an impact on recall or retention. So I think the thing is we have to, we have to take this all back a step and say, okay, there's not necessarily enough research out there. It hasn't been replicated. It's not necessarily super reliable or valid yet. Um, so what do we make of this? I, I think we just have to say there isn't a scientifically backed answer to the question yet. So we really have to think about what is ultimately the best combination in the mix. Uh, when we think about our production process, what's going to take us longer or shorter to produce, what's going to be easier for us to update or not update over time. Uh, what is the, the, okay. What do you do? What do you like? I mean, I know I'm like, you talk about the, the, the record of it and data, but when, when me, for me, I don't use yeah. talking heads. I don't use talking heads simply because the time I make so many changes in a maintenance cycle that going like, Hey, well, I wanted to keep this one slide in this one section, but now I can't because the person that was recording it had a different shirt. Yeah, no, that's, that's my, that's, that's, that's exactly, <laughs> no, that's exactly, that's exactly my point too. And because there's no research or evidence telling me that doing it is super effective. And instead it's just kind of people saying like, Oh, well, well, people like human faces, human faces are more engaging to me. It's not worth the production effort to do that. Now, what I have done in the past is I have done bumpers where Mm -hmm. you'll, you'll shoot, you know, someone is a talking head video, introducing the video uh, that can help welcome people into the content, put a human face on it. Uh, But it's not necessarily when the instruction is happening. So you're not worried about cognitive load at that point. You're worried more about, bringing people into the, uh, the content, framing it up for them. That might be a good place to have yeah. a human, but there's no reason necessarily to have someone's face on screen the entire time while the instruction is going on, especially because I just don't think there's, awesome. again, there's not enough research there to, to validate the production expense that it would take to keep updating that. So I don't either for the most part. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, the only other comment I'd make in addition to that would be the experiences that I've had with Twitch, LinkedIn Live, YouTube Live. When you're using something like OBS or Streamlabs and you're taking full advantage of and it, it, you're basically now a production studio that's acting very mimically, very closely mimicking what you would have seen in an old TV, like switch to camera two, switch to camera three, mm -hmm. show me this. I mean, we're, start, we're starting to really grok this as on average, all of us are starting to finally understand these tools. Like Zoom has really helped us out, go to web and all these different platforms. We get it now. We can understand and change the modality of what you're looking at. So I can go, hey, Adam, let's do a screenshot of this, right? Or let's do a screen share right now. I want to show you this. And then I just fluidly do it. But where I think this really calls in, into the discrimination of the instructional designer or even a trainer who's leading a session is, okay, now you're seeing me. I want you to see me, Dave, because I want to relate to you. I want to talk to you. I want to look you in the eye. And me, and that, that trains other things. I have to be looking at the camera like I am now, not looking down because that doesn't make sense. Those are meaningful experiences because they capture the eye movement. Like I see, you see my eyes. My eyes are looking at you. That, that, that's kind of an emotional thing. But I don't do that all the time. So if I were fluidly working through a Twitch session, like for example, I used to do tr uh, sessions on at outreach via Twitch. So I would have several different scenes up on the screen. And one of them would be a please stand by. And then there's one with me in the corner and the back screen. And there's one just with the screen. And there's one just with me. And with keystrokes, I could fluidly change those. And people are like, wow, this is really cool because it actually engaged you and brought you through. But it's not something I do in e-learning and on-demand content because it's distracting. Anyway, let yeah, me talk about yeah. this. So, today, no, so you, you're, you're right. Like, it, it, there's, there's so much to be said here about the modality that you're, you're working in. And I think the, the really fun part about this is it's going to be a while before peer-reviewed research catches up with you know, where, where, where there's, enough, there's enough studies done. They're replicable. They're reliable. They're valid. Um, we haven't seen meta-analyses come out of any of these yet. It's going to be a yeah. while before we really see yeah. that. But the thing that I think is cool is that those of us in customer education are often training hundreds, thousands, millions of students, uh, and we can see at least how people are reacting to it. Uh, often, if we're uploading into video software like Vimeo or Wissia or Vidyard, uh, we can see where people are dropping off or not dropping off. Uh, we can correlate content consumption with actions in our product. So guess what? We have a laboratory to see what is or isn't working, and each of us can actually yeah. run our own experiments to figure out what's resonating with our audience and ultimately what's not just leading to satisfaction, but what's leading to transfer. So I think that's pretty cool. We can, we can make some decisions for ourselves based on what we're seeing. I think that's really cool. And that's the best. You know, when, when, if you say, if you do something and you prove it works and you see the CSAT scores and you see surveys and other information, you know, people liked it, then you've got that data point. Yeah. So, you know, I think in general, it is a good idea to remember the goal of our materials and make reasonable design assumptions based on that. Uh, avoid those seductive details. Don't throw in visuals and bells and whistles just for the sake of it. Don't put in background music just because you think it's going to be fun while you're trying to teach concepts that are going to require a lot of active processing. But also, let's be receptive to what our learners actually find engaging and what we see leading to higher feedback scores. And, and most importantly, to learning transfer or behavior change or product adoption if we're measuring those things. Right, right. Very good. So I feel like we've we beat this up. I, I, I feel good about it. How, how do you we've, feel? We've, we've drained it. We've drained the topic and we've taken our left turn into a stealth instructional design episode. So All you right. know what? If you're happy, I'm happy. 
I'm happy. And for listeners, I hope you're happy too. Well, let's uh, let's close this out. So, Adam, great stuff. This was a two for today, and I love the Stealth 101 instructional designs. Um, now if you want to learn more, we have a podcast website at customer.education. Again, it's a very easy to remember. Uh, there you're going to find show notes, transcriptions, and other material, all of our podcast archives all throughout time. Now, if you're looking to connect with us, we're on LinkedIn and also on Twitter and the Twitterverse. I am at Dave Darrington. I'm at Avramescu. And special thanks, of course, to Alan Coda for our theme music. And if this helped you out, I'm not going to read the thing that I usually read. Please give us a nice review on Apple Podcasts. We're Please. looking to continue getting getting this out into the world. We'd really appreciate your help doing that and uh, sharing this on social media or sharing a good review on Apple Podcasts. That's the best way to do it. Absolutely. Oh, and to our audience, we always like to close out. Thanks again for taking the time to join us. Get out there, educate, experiment, find your people. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>